Welcome to the New Lines Podcast, our home for open conversations about the world. My name is Anthony Elgisane, and I'll be your host this time around. Today, we'll be having a conversation about Afghanistan, or at least some of the important and urgent issues that Afghans, Americans, and others are grappling with at this time. On the one hand, of course, we wish we'd be getting together under slightly different circumstances. On the other hand, though, we're really lucky to be with Ferhan de Akbar and Andrew Watkins, two people who they hail from different backgrounds, are intimately familiar with and passionate about Afghanistan. Now, Farhande Akbar has completed her PhD or is in the process of completing her PhD. She focuses her research on diplomacy and the difficulties of peace settlements with non-state armed actors, including the Taliban in Afghanistan. She also sits on the National Center for Dialogue and Progress. Andrew Watkins was a senior analyst for Afghanistan at the International Crisis Group and has now just moved to begin work at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Now, Andrew has been engaged in and on Afghanistan in different ways uh, for many years. But together, we'll be discussing uh, Afghanistan in a three-part conversation. First, we'll listen to Farhande and Andrew discuss their personal feelings, sentiments, and reactions to the Taliban's takeover, at least in the political and military sense of Afghanistan. Second, we'll talk about their assessments. Uh, we'll have them put on their professional hats, so to speak. And third, we'll give them a time to make any concluding remarks, uh, reflect, maybe uh, make projections. With that, I'd like to welcome Farhunde and Andrew. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Anthony. Pleasure to be with you and Andrew on this platform. Thanks very much, Anthony. It, it is, it's, the timing is is not auspicious, but it's it's great to be here speaking with both of you. Farhundi, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with you. Now, now I'm not entirely clear on it, and I think that's why I bungled the introduction. But you are basically done with your PhD, and from what I remember, uh, you were defending your dissertation while a lot of the political and military changes uh, were happening in and around Kabul. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. My PhD journey has been a very lively one. Um, as I was researching on um, the prospects of peace settlement with the Taliban, and um, throughout, uh, especially since after conducting my desk research and um, stepping into the field work, this whole uh, political settlement with the Taliban. Uh, become alive and I was in Kabul on the first round of the US Taliban negotiation that started in October 2018. Um, I was just got there a month before and I was there to um, talk about stakeholders and actors who have been diplomatically engaged with the Taliban and since then it has been a very um, adventurous endeavors uh, um, and 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 cha things changing with uh, spans of hours and days and weeks and months um, and uh, yeah the day that I was uh, meant to present the find the final findings of my PhD thesis a four year journey was the first day of the Taliban takeover of Kabul um, it was a mixed uh, very mixed feelings. Um, for me uh, and probably for any Afghan around the world in, in Afghanistan. 
um, but especially that day for me, um, talking about um, a political settlement uh, or, or, or things that I have been working on and many others about how do we politically settle uh, this brutal 40 year of conflict um, that brings good uh, to the people of Afghanistan. And that day I had to um, uh, focus on my uh, on my my own journey of that process, uh, that topic. Uh, but at the same time, I could not avoid uh, that today is the first day of the Taliban's military takeover of Afghanistan, and 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 yeah, and I'm about to submit problem next next week this time. Well, a tentative uh, congratulations uh, on on that. Uh, I imagine your your feelings were bittersweet at the time. Maybe the the personal accomplishment and the journey. Uh, mixed with uh, watching that happen to to a state and society you call your own. Uh, how have you been feeling since? How, how do you feel now about what you're seeing, hearing, and learning uh, about uh, Kabul and the rest of Afghanistan, uh, I guess, since the takeover became uh, official? From time to time, it feels that uh, the sediments of the miseries of the last 40 years of conflict is fed to us. Um, in matter of hours and days and weeks. Um, um, I Last one month, I have been watching a generation's dream shatter in front of me. Um, and this has devastated uh, me and many others. In the past month, um, I have had friends, especially women and girls, calling me, writing to me, um, in great despairs about their sense of helplessness and hopelessness. Uh, these are women and people that I have uh, looked up to. They were, they were the real fighters. They were self-made Afghan girls who broke uh, social, cultural, and patriarchal barriers um, from their homes, starting from their homes, their villages, their country, um, and 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 they were they became entrepreneurs, lawyers, human rights activists, journalists, doctors, uh, professionals of any field, um, and telling me that they're diminishing, um, uh, they're just diminishing uh, so quickly now that it's just like the ashes, and it's just like a smoke in the air. Um, and, 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 and people cannot even trace them from now on. And that's how fast um, everything was in, uh, unfolding for them and how I had to sort of understand uh, them and their feeling. Um, I have been visiting Afghanistan frequently in the last um, 10, 11 years, just after I turned 18 and I was allowed to travel on my own from Australia back home to Afghanistan. And Throughout these times, I've been meeting incredible women and girls, um, both in urban areas and in rural areas, and people from across the Afghan ethnic groups. Um, and, 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 and they were giving me the sense and the hope, hopefulness that they were born at a better time. And they were born at a time in Afghanistan that Afghanistan was at better at the hand of better people, um, uh, better fate, and and 
um, and, and now that they are equipped with uh, better or equipped in a way that they could uh, they could serve better in an open Afghanistan, um, Afghanistan that is that is sort of trying to heal itself and open itself to the world. But what unfolded before our eyes in the last one year more dramatically and then in the last few months um, after the Biden administration announcement for unconditional uh, withdrawal of foreign troops from Afghanistan, um, and everything sort of shattered so catastrophically. Um, it was tragic uh, for me to watch uh, uh, thousands of miles away from Australia, but so close to how I felt with everything um, um, uh, internally, personally. And I felt this irresponsible this irresponsibleness of every actor that were involved in Afghanistan. Um, it, it was so strong. Um, I mean, I, I've been a student of political sciences and international relations for the last 10 years. I did my bachelor's, my dual master's, and but I never saw any cases that would match and that would give me sort of that justification that this is a normal thing to happen, but it was not. Um, the, the phase that it was happening and the pace that it was happening. Um, but yeah, um, uh, right now, uh, what we are today, a month later from that catastrophic event, that day that was um, taken the world to its surprise, um, Afghanistan, we believe, will continue to exist um, uh, as a place, as a country, as they say that the mountains will remain tall and it's turquoise color. And its beauty will revive and endure, but uh, the generation is lost, and, and and it has been wounded. It has. I have watched it being, from being able to being disabled, um, and that's something irreparable. Um, that that's something that I have been mourned in the last one month um, for that generation. Um, uh, I have already seen survivors of previous wars, including people in my family, uh, people in my, my parents, um, uh, that they have been hopeless and helpless. Um, but once they were just like me or many other young Afghan, very hopeful about um, the future of their country, their own, believed in their own capabilities. Um, uh, but... Uh, but they looked at us, the young generation, just to console and comfort us that um, because things did not go well in their lifetime, in their time, in their um, era, it's now our time and our responsibility to to do our best uh, to fight and uh, for for Afghanistan, for a better Afghanistan, for an Afghan dream, which is so simple. It's just peace and prosperity for every person in Afghanistan and from Afghanistan. Um, and yeah, so I think uh, for me, the hardest part in the last one month was to watch that all those things, hardship that I have grown up with, it, um, it was killed or it was murdered at a very young age. And there is a word in Farsi, it's, uh, it is called Jawan Mark, which literally means young death which refers to an unfulfilled dream and aspiration 
I think Afghanistan is um, experiencing its own phase of Jawan Mark. It's a very early death for its generation that have been hopeful in the last 20 years. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, uh, we'll, we'll turn it over to Andrew in a minute, but if you don't mind, uh, I want to be a little delicate here. I mean, you mentioned um, an unfulfilled dream and uh, I'm, I'm not Afghan. Uh, I'm not very familiar with the state and society, to be frank. Um, but I've been following the news over the last few months and I, I see some some parallels with other states in society that I'm more familiar with. And a lot of the feelings you've shared now and also offline have reminded me of, of things people have said around the world. And I wonder if you also, uh, to ask the open question, have any feelings regarding you know the, the world, the, the states and societies that through making war, through engaging in diplomacy, through different programmatic initiatives. Um, obviously, you know, they didn't unilaterally transform place. Uh, Afghans were agents in their own lives. But I, I think it's also naive and irresponsible to suggest that 20 years of American-led, uh, say, war and intervention in Afghanistan haven't changed the side. Do you feel maybe there's also a, a sort of midnight promise that, that not only were, were dreams shattered or lives unfulfilled, but that the, the promises people from abroad made were, were, were broken? Um, or, I mean, I don't want to speak for you. How, how do you feel about that? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, to the Afghan uh, people, to the young generation, those people whose promise and dreams were shattered and uh, and taken away, it was, uh, th there's a two, two side to it. It's one, what we blame or call accountable our own elders, people who represented us, people who fought for us, who advocated for us this is afghan actors and then it's the internationals uh, the misery is that they both failed us um, both of them both uh, our own elders be it your own community leader you know your your representative in your ethnic level your national level and then the international side that we believed um, as young people taught about this whole um, globalized village that um, people or the world care about your rights or your your status and your well-being. So you asked me the question about how how I feel is a, uh, and then uh, reflecting back to uh, to my own story. But and then the young people, it's it's just that failures of that two sides of the coin or two main actors. The national and the, the international promising um, um, uh, they were uh, responsible uh, but they were not held accountable in the last 20 years in particular but of course uh, longer than that for um, for us in Afghanistan um, uh, let's say 43 years so yes uh, those midnight promises um, uh, we it's been long that the people of Afghanistan have not um, that their political uh, representative have failed them 
but I think it has become much more profound and much more um, uh, strong uh, in the last 20 years because uh, there was a process involved, uh, there was a phase and there was mechanisms, uh, but they still phase, uh, failed and, and we ourselves were held so helpless that we could not really do much about it as young as the young people you know as people who were holding that responsibility about the future as i mentioned our elders everywhere we go i mean they put their their hand on our head and say that the future of afghanistan belongs to you but here in the present time we are dealing with these actors that be it national or international that are not accountable to us, and um, and we we feel so helpless and powerless. Powerful sentiments, um, Andrew. Uh, you're an American. You've become uh, familiar uh, with Afghanistan yourself over the years. Um, obviously, you're going to have a different experience uh, than Farhonde and other Afghans. But would you care to tell us a bit about how you came to know Afghanistan? your experiences there and your experiences working in and on uh, that state and society, and also how you feel now about everything that's happened. Yeah, <clears throat> thanks, Anthony. It's particularly given the way the United States left and and everything that, that Farhanda describes so movingly, uh, in, in terms of how people's lives and, and how an entire society is, is now being so suddenly shaped. It's impossible to not, as an American, who no matter how many different roles or what different sector or what parts of Afghanistan that I've, I've, I've worked on or, or lived in or experienced, you know, as as an outsider, as someone who has been part of this, this massive sweeping foreign intervention, um, there, there is always that positionality as an American. Um, that was, that was something that from the very beginning, I wanted to move as far away from as possible while also knowing that I was never going to be able to escape it. Uh, my, my position and my perspective as an American and, and the perceptions of everyone that I might meet. What I mean is my, my first trip to Afghanistan, uh, it was, it was 15 years ago now. And, and it was, it was like many Americans first trip to Afghanistan. It, it was living in compounds with security fences and, and, huge concrete walls and and you have the might of the entire american military hovering over you and standing with you and 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 you're a part of this this big machine and, and because you're an american on a foreign intervention you've you've convinced yourself or or your your national leaders have tried to convince you that what you're doing is for good and and a lot of those attempts to persuade the people who get sent are those very broken promises that, that Farhanda, you know, referenced. But so on that first trip, what the little bit that I saw of, of this country um, and, and the very little bit 
that I was able to experience from behind walls, from behind gates, from from behind a, a, an, an interventionist perspective, it, it made me so hungry to learn more. And, and so then for the next 15 years, I, I spent a lot of time in my life reading everything that I could, speaking to everyone that I could to soak up different perspectives, a, a perspective that wasn't mine and that was broader than mine. And, and every time I returned to the country afterward, it was always in pursuit of a, um, a kind of work that could break out of some of those, those compounds and cages that, that, that the American presence always cloaked itself in. Um, I, I, I went to work for humanitarian organizations and, and managed to finally travel the country freely after, after spending a couple years of my life on these military bases and on these government installations uh, that, that really didn't show you anything about Afghanistan. But then, of course, the more you break out of those compounds, the more you realize as you step out into Afghanistan that there, there is no stepping out of your skin and there's no stepping out of your position and, and, and who you are. And, and the, you know, the, the beautiful thing is that there were so many Afghans I met who, who said that doesn't matter. You, you know, you do come from this position and, and we do look at you as, as a person from this particular place, but there was such overwhelming hospitality and, and more than hospitality. I mean, there there have been so many Afghans in my life who have given me what I could only describe as tutelage in in sharing their world and, and the way that they see the world and, and little snippets of their life. Afghanistan is not an, an easy place to to crack open and, and to begin to try and, and experience or, or um, as, as, as an outsider, but but I've just experienced so much warmth in, in the various iterations of trying to go there. Um, and how do you feel now? Well, I mean, I, so you have a long arc here, right? And I imagine when you first got there, you know, you were behind the walls as you're talking about and you, you felt it. And over time, people welcomed you into their lives. They gave you what you call tutelage, what I might call love, being someone who's straddled a couple of states and societies. And now we as Americans, uh, I guess, regardless of how we could spin and we can get into the analysis later, the, the strategic need or the, the political moment have left people that might feel left behind, people that did welcome you, right, who opened up the society that that to you as an outsider was quote unquote tough to crack open. I think and I'm, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feelings on this because, uh, because I know you to be sensitive, but I also know you're aware and we've talked about this, that sometimes we can't, no matter what we do, escape that, that positionality, right? What hurts the most about what we've seen over the last few months is is that it is a compounded failure um and what i mean by that is there's there's no escaping the the 
the tragedy and the catastrophe of, of how events have unfolded, um, the decisions made, and then the way that those decisions were carried out, the, the way that the, the entire state and society of Afghanistan was, was left unaware, uh, sorry, not unaware, but left, you know, so unprepared and, and everything rushed like a flood and that's not to absolve any other actors at any other level, as Farhonda mentions, of, of agency. But what what is eating at me and has been, even before events culminated in the middle of August, watching things slide over this spring and, and summer, what I'm left with is the fact that the act of departure was a failure, but it was also decided to depart because of so many years of failure. And it took so long for the United States to publicly acknowledge and to grapple with on its own end, on its own terms, that everything that it had promised, that everything it had attempted to do or set out to do you know, at times inadvertently or, or somewhat unintentionally, but but these promises to help remake and, and to fuel an entire generation of Afghanistan. Um, th the fact is, I, I remember seeing in so many different ways over the past decade that that it wasn't working and that there were deep systemic chronic problems with the way the United States was trying to help fulfill all of these promises they made. And they all pointed towards an exit. And, and, and what hurts so much is, number one, that the exit had to come because the United States has demonstrated so thoroughly that it was never going to be able to fulfill the promises it made. And then number two, after having realized that awful fact, its exit only adds insult to injury. Um, the, the exit was always going to come after the United States finally accepted the fact that there was so much that it just wasn't able to do, things that it had promised to do. But then on top of it, that, that, it, that, it, that it catalyzes things uh, that turn out so much worse. Uh, Firkhundi, uh, on this note, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that you mentioned twice, I believe, that this was in your mind a 40 year conflict. And uh, it strikes me that, you know, Americans on the whole and Afghans may have a different time frames in mind when speaking of, of it. But um, let's f focus on, let's say, overt and sustained large-scale uh, American involvement that, that begins uh, after the, the attacks of 9-11. So in September and October 2001. Do you think and feel that as an, as an Afghan, um, speaking for yourself, of course, that the, the venture was, was the problem? Because, you know, Andrew's saying in part, at least if I understand correctly, that the United States was sort of 
destined or doomed to fail, at least in part of what it was promising or stating it was trying to do. Meanwhile, you, you as an Afghan of a particular background, disposition, worldview, fine, are saying that some of your deeper disappointments might be because of this failure and the, and the promises made in the first place. So did you all maybe did you feel it was a failure uh, two years ago? Did you see that tracking a certain way? Um, maybe before the, the changes of control we started seeing earlier this year and then the, the rapid onslaught in the summer. Did you uh, characterize it or feel uh, that this was a failure? Um, the failure of the U.S. that we have been observing in Afghanistan is not one year or two years. It's from the day that it began to invade Afghanistan or intervene in, in Afghanistan. And the sort of system that was in place in Afghanistan. And it come back to the, our constitution, something that we are proud of because um, it's a very modern and very civilized and uh, civilian-centered constitution. But of course, the problem is that it does not um, address the deep-seated problems within um, Afghanistan's um, um, uh, political history. I mean, we are a nation, we have never been um, stabilized, uh, at least in the last hundred year, we have had some, I don't know, some seven different constitution, different rules, monarchy, republic, authoritarian, communist, Islamist um, democracy. But we realized the Americans' failure in Afghanistan when they put in place a very centralized um, governance system in Afghanistan that is a very diverse, uh, a very diverse um, um, society, very tribal, um, ethnically, uh, ethnically diverse as well. And, and, and the sort of places, um, the sort of mistakes that were made in the last um, um, 20 years, um, elections were corrupted, the US came and fixed it. There was big scandal from this political person or party and then that person was selected as a, as a president and then, um, and so on. So, Throughout the time, it diminished the people's hope about this whole project of state building and nation building in Afghanistan, and um, and 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 I, and I think it, it, everything did not happen overnight. It was a process, and there was flags. People were raising those flags and telling that, look, there has been fraud in the election. But we got a John Kerry coming to Kabul and then bringing us this sort of making um, something extraordinary out of our constitution calling national unity government. I'm referring to the, to the 2014 presidential election where um, Abdullah was, um, Dr. Abdullah was contesting President, uh, uh, President Ghani on his um, result. Um, 
and even before that 2019 election 2009 election so every election we had since after 2014 2009 uh, 14 and 19 i was an observer in the 2019 one there was I, I just sort of sensed and captured this um, uh, people's thickness of hopelessness and uh, sort of their disbelief in the whole project. So uh, yeah, um, uh, and and this was a failure from the U.S. parts, from the international community's part. That whenever something went wrong. If even if it was from the Afghan actress side, they did not do enough to address it, to give people that look, we are here, we are standing on the principal side. Afghanistan is a complex country, complex actors, difficult, yes, but regardless, we are standing on a more principal side. And here, yeah, your election was frauded, and here this is the this is the action that we are taking. That did not take place. And that demoralized people and that uh, changed people's perception and perspective about uh, about the US and its whole engagement in Afghanistan that um, I mean I, 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 I was in Afghanistan I was traveling I was talking to my own family my own relative villages and they're like no nah, whatever the US decide whoever the US decide will become the president. So do you think this was the, the presence, at least at that level, the presence and power of any actor uh, in that way, but in this case, the United States, we, we sort of reoriented people, maybe made them both dependent in some ways, but then disappointed in, in other ways? Look, because otherwise, and I, and I think this is a good time to, uh, sorry to, to cut you off, to, to transition in the, the analysis section, um, but... Yeah. Uh, it's just interesting to me um, be, because, you know, if we could do just a brief history, right? So Afghanistan acquires uh, its independence, at least by treaty in 1919, right? As you've said and written, it's gone through at least five forms of rule and seven constitutions, depending on how we count this uh, in that time. And uh, based on, on your own words, there's been a, a sort of ongoing, albeit ever-evolving conflict since the 70s, when you, the monarchs deposed and then we have the Soviet invasion, uh, American involvement in the 80s, of course, uh, the well-known, uh, let's say, covert struggle in the 90s, and then the invasion after the attacks of 9-11 in 2001. Okay, the reason I'm bringing all of this up is to ask why and how America is responsible beyond maybe a responsibility attaching once it intervenes. I don't want to go to the far extreme and, and bring up these old specters that, you know, others tend to do. Uh, but but it's it also, uh, it is also true that people in the state and in the society were struggling politically and socially, right? And factionally before the United States uh, became involved. And, and so regardless of how its involvement reorients that struggle, is it really responsible for, for this? And if um, so, why and how? Absolutely. I would say they're absolutely responsible, if not before, but post-2001, because they 
they saw these different episodes unfolding in Afghanistan and the US, whenever, this is the time that they had a control and they had an influence over the actors in Afghanistan. And here the US was just quick fixing things in a way that, that resulted in who we are today, that they turned it into ashes. And our blame is, I mean, I, as, a, as an Afghan girl or an Afghan person from youth, it is us as well as an Afghan society, and there are different elements involved in this whole situation, but the international community and here the U.S. in particularly plays a critical role because it had a power to influence. When the election was fraudulent and the, when elections, um, uh, 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 that election result was played out with, the U.S. could could make a difference there. And I'm talking not about now, I'm talking about 12 years ago. They could make a difference, but they did not. And this whole thing um, uh, played out in the morale of the Afghan people and in in what they believed in in this whole project of of um, post two thousand and one Afghanistan, so I mean, um, this whole notion of that of 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 not trusting, you know, not putting your heart anymore. Because what I mentioned in my early remark was how people sort of sacrifice their life, give away everything for this opportunity that was open to them but it was the international community and international community when you boil it down it is the u.s because they were the one who are doing most of the fundings and most of the political decisions and the influencing political decisions of the u.n and other actors they did not do their job right um and and I, I think it's a bit early to talk, but in years to come, we will we will be hearing and seeing and um, reading about the um, analysis of uh, this whole um, this whole um, situation in Afghanistan and why it ended up the way it it did. But being from that society, I can point my finger very directly and very confidently that. Uh, there were signs, there were flags, there were people raising those flags and saying that here is wrong, but unfortunately it was much more political decision and not principle decision. And here, I mean, nation building and state building does not happen over a night. You know, you can't change things um, so quickly. And and the U.S. was, was not responsible enough, unfortunately. And today... Um, it is costing them a generation, like a generation of Afghanistan, and, and, and probably a very bad, um, a very uh, uh, rotten or or, or or a case that that reminds them of their own failures, which is Afghanistan, and unfortunately my generation. Now uh, I will say, based on my personal experience elsewhere, I mean I'm inclined to agree uh, with a lot of what you said. But but I do want to bring Andrew in because it, to me there, Andrew, feel free to follow up. Uh, it's an open question. You take it wherever you want to go. But to me, in my mind, there 
there are two interesting questions here. The first is, again, whether the venture itself was doomed from the beginning. And what I mean by that is uh, over time, I think uh, we've had different schools in American foreign policy talk about, you know, whether the venture itself is flawed or it was just down to execution. So if, if you'd like, please comment on that. And, and then the other uh, point I'd like you to comment on is Farhundi's, uh, I mean, different points on, on the interplay of, of American, say, officials, officers, programmers and the like with uh, incumbent Afghan uh, elites, uh, be they in the central uh, government that we were cultivating or uh, in, in urban areas and, and even rural areas where you know, it's it's possible you just can't come in and transform everything overnight. What are we doing in the first place trying to do that? Uh, and can we enter a state and society like this and, and just try to circumvent everyone who holds influence already? But anyway, it's, a, it's an open question. Please feel free to, to comment on what Furkhundi said. Anthony, those are the right questions. And, and I'm... I'm glad you asked them, and and I really appreciate Farhanda's answer because I think I think there's a key word here that ties her her insights and your follow-on questions together, which is scale. Um, the the reason why I think it's fair to say that this is this was a failure of the undertaking itself and not simply of execution. Um, is because there was uh, an, an ignorance and, and a, on the American side, there was an ignorance of the scale of the magnitude of what they were attempting to undertake from the beginning. Um, on the other hand, the scale of what the United States poured into this country financially uh, uh, in terms of attention, in terms of the commitment, not only of military resources, all of it contributed to, as you say, there, there's a difference between coming in and trying to remake a state and, and then also local actors adjusting and responding. But in Afghanistan, you had as much as any state on earth by 2001, a place that because of these previous decades of conflict had, it would be reductive to say that it had been, it had become a blank slate, that there was no longer a state or society to function, but, but the country had been through multiple phases of decades of scorched earth warfare first with between between resistors and and a foreign occupier and then between various camps and factions and then by one particularly brutal faction who came in and suggested that all of the other factions needed to disappear in in order for normal life to return and then of course they did the furthest thing from from ushering uh, normal life back in so you had you had in Afghanistan in 2001, I mean, one of the most famous books written about the period is called The Fragmentation of Afghanistan. Um, not just politically, but but the social order, the, the ties that bound families and communities. And the United States stepped into that, that vacuum 
that the Taliban's regime in the 90s was barely holding together by a few thin threads. And what did the U.S. do? It started to dump billions of dollars. And, and as Farhonda says, they, they sent a menagerie of, of NGOs and, and partners and affiliates and UN agencies to begin slapping the equivalent of international band-aids on everything they saw uh, in the country. There's something to, to try and close the circle and hand it back to the both of you. There's something that my, my former colleague and, and, and my, my mentor uh, at Crisis Group, Laurel Miller, who is a former senior U.S. official, has said and insisted on, and I think it's worth repeating, that a lot of people, even today in the United States, want to make the argument that the, the intervention in Afghanistan suffered from mission creep that we went there with a very simple objective, whether that was to, to deal with Al-Qaeda or, or, or whatever else, something directly related to the, the, uh, the attacks that had just occurred on September 11th. And Laurel's point is that mission creep suggests the mission was simple from the beginning and that it was complicated in the execution uh, to your question, Anthony. But in fact, as the minute that the United States committed to toppling the Taliban as part of its original mission, it was also, whether it admitted it or not, committed to rebuilding Afghanistan. And that was something that the United States only slowly, gradually realized as a government, as a system of institutions, as people who were there as interventionists. Over the course of the first decade, as, as Farhunda has, has both detailed and summarized, from the very first day in the first years of its intervention, there were choices that the United States made. And I don't think very many people in the U.S. government and, and certainly not in U.S. society realized that the stakes of their choice were nothing less than fundamentally reshaping uh, a social order, far more than a constitutional order, but the way that people related to one another. And, and I think we need nothing to do other than to look at the amount of money flowing inside Afghanistan. And, and, and if you look at charts of GDP growth, it's an exponential growth where everything in Afghanistan's history prior to what the United States dumped into this country is, is a blip. It, it, it looks relatively like zero compared to what was dumped into the country. And, and so, sorry, to the, just to sum up, the idea that this was mission creep to suggest that what happened in Afghanistan was mission creep is in and of itself irresponsible. Because the day that you give yourself a mission and part of that mission is to wipe away the, the, the regime that was barely holding the country together, you know, however viciously and brutally, you have also committed, whether you like it or not, to putting something up in its place. And it took it, the United States the better part of a decade to realize, oh, we actually do have to put something up in its place and, and we have to shepherd it to, to some semblance of functionality. By that time, the United States was already looking at how to get out. 
Ferjunde, uh, I've noticed, you know, in, in listening to you and Andrew speak, that you share a sense of the, the ever-evolving conflict, but there are maybe slight slight differences. In your mind, when, when does this all begin? If, if you could, please uh, walk us through, uh, let's say, the emergence of, of the Taliban from the factionalism of a certain era up through the American invasion and then the project we're now talking about that that we've all uh, acknowledged was failing for a while and then ended in a, in a failure too okay from what i understand um look uh the afghanistan's violence and war um responsible from its own actor and international. So we're talking about um, US, uh, the, the Soviets 1979 invasion and then the civil war and then the emergence of the Taliban to bring uh, order in an anarchic Afghan society, the ruling uh, from 1995 to 2001 and then post that, um, um, we see that um, it's 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 the way in which Afghanistan was handled by the people who were holding uh, responsibilities about um, its affairs, um, and and post that um, uh, after two thousand and one, uh, uh, why why the Taliban become. Um, emboldened or become uh, relevant and it all uh, boiled down to the international communities, the NATO forces, especially the U.S.'s um, counterinsurgency policies, the night raids, the drone attacks, um, attacking families and villages across Afghanistan, especially in southern and eastern Afghanistan that give the reason for these people to um, look away and, and, and not relate uh, to this post-2001 order, um, give them enough reasons that um, they have to, this is just one, one episode of uh, Afghanistan wars. Um, you are on your own as the people of Afghanistan. You have nowhere to go. You're living here during this village, and this superpower is coming, attacking you, uh, um, raiding your house, your family, killing so many people in your own uh, relative in your your own circles. And this is this is enough reasons for. Um, for people um, in those places, in, in the grassroots, to believe that um, what is happening now is no different to what happened to us before. Um, and, and I mean, I'm not going into detail what happened in Afghanistan before 2001. It should be, it is in the world's record, but uh, for our purpose, post-2001, the all of these things that happened uh, to the people, to the families, to the villages of Afghanistan, um, uh, sort of um, conditioned uh, what we are seeing today. And, and here, um, all, all, uh, all that what happened, um, uh, they did not resist it to the changes, 
to the to the military endeavor of the Taliban or 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 or, or the gov or providing support for the government, and um, and yeah, uh, here we are today, um, August um, September two thousand twenty one, that the Taliban have taken over and. Um, and yeah, we have to uh, deal with an with a government with a system that uh, probably the world. I mean, the world does not recognize. But uh, boiling it down to that, people of Afghanistan they do not recognize it and recognize it either because it does not serve them. But the alternative, anything better, is not there, and that's and that's a problem because people cannot um, call on people, on their own leaders, um, their own, uh, the international community lo um, losing that hope that they have had. And today they, they have no choice but, um, but to surrender and submit to what, what's available to them. You know, this, this lack of options uh, that I think it's so critical in any understanding of, of conflict in Afghanistan, not just this phase, there's, I'm, I want to say something that might sound like I'm, I'm diverging a bit, but I think it's very closely related. There is a tendency when speaking with, with Afghans from, from any level of society, whether it's the the infamous taxi driver uh, analysis of of a country, or or whether it's speaking with policy elites uh, from the previous government, or or maybe even the current one, um, when w the more Afghans you speak to as a foreigner, as as someone who's been a part of the intervention uh, the last two decades, the the more clearly it emerges that there is a, an entire set of paradigms and that there is a perspective that focuses on the foreign intervention into this country. And I've spent time with a lot of other foreigners who come to Afghanistan, who I think are far too quick to dismiss or deride this perspective as, as uh, somewhat conspiratorial. Um, it's, it's, they're, there are often conversations where the entire uh, the entire locus of, of analysis for what's happening in Afghanistan can be ascribed to uh, this neighboring country or that neighboring country or a regional power such as the United States or the Soviet Union. And, and among internationals, I think it's something that is simplified and reduced. What I've always found amazing about it is how richly well-informed Afghans at every level of society are about their own history. Be because it, what, what is undeniable is that all of those meddlings and all of that interference and all of those foreign interventions did actually happen. And, and, and when you talk about a lack of options, there's there's also a lack of options in terms of Afghanistan's positionality in in the region and and in contests contests between between uh, larger regional or global powers and it, 
maybe maybe what I'm saying, Anthony, is coming back to your question about whether or not, uh, you know, when you ask about responsibility for uh, foreign interventionists or or uh, a variety of actors, obviously, including Afghans themselves, and you talk about reshaping a society versus coming in and and people adjusting to a new foreign presence. I think we also have to take the the historical long view and remember that it's it's not even just four decades in which Afghans have have been presented with impossible choices um, between one foreign intervention or leaning on another potential foreign intervener just to help counter the other one that is the more immediate threat. That has been the story of Afghanistan's foreign relations for quite some time. Um, that's a that's a simplification in one way, but it's also an undeniable fact um, that I, that I think you it, you and I in our conversations, obviously, you can relate to uh, people. There are other countries and societies in the world that feel themselves torn between neighboring states and regional powers and, and broader agendas. Uh, it's not that Afghanistan is alone in the world in this way, but it's a unique category of, of places on earth where um, foreign interventionism really does do more than just prompt a reshuffling of local actors. It, it, is, a, it is a constant that, that, it, that, is, that has often been and, and continues to shape every domestic calculation um, politically, in terms of goods that are available in every local bazaar, um, all of it. It's, it's ever-present. No, I, I agree. I think it's fair to say, um, as in the Levant, for instance, the domestic politics could be uh, intimately internationalized. And that, that affects uh, everything you're talking about. But on that note, uh, I'd like to ask you both. I, I think it's a good point to, to kind of uh, shift the conversation a little bit to talk about the last, uh, to my understanding, but please feel free to correct me, couple of years that, that brought us to the, this point, which is the, the, in my mind, the, the sort of engagement of uh, the Taliban uh, that began under the Trump administration. And I would say, uh, continued with the Biden administration. Uh, Falkunde, how, how you've written about this uh, publicly. Uh, I imagine, based on what you've told me, that it's also part of your uh, dissertation, your doctoral work. Uh, how did you see the international and U.S.-led engagement at the time? And how did you sort of grapple with it? And if you could, I, I, it might be tough to ask this, but if you could, maybe let's let's cut out for now what we know has happened and, and try to walk us through your evolving assessments and sentiments over the past few years. Um, yeah, look, um, the Taliban's political and diplomatic engagement uh, with the U.S. and the world started from October 2018, when the U.S. decided to engage with the Taliban in a negotiation directly in an absence of the Afghan government. We had um, engagement, diplomatic engagement with the Taliban before that, but it was not in the high level. 
and it was not considered decisive enough. And even um, when the Taliban were in power, there were different episodes of humanitarian diplomacy and state to state or US to Taliban diplomacy and other countries um, sort of engaging with the Taliban on different topics. But what happened in October 2018 was profound for the Taliban because the Taliban's condition um, to talk to the U.S. directly on the fate of Afghanistan in absence of the Afghan government was unique. And it, it, everything started from there, um, I think. And that's when... Um, Mullah Baradar was released from the, from the Pakistani custody to sort of give authority and legitimacy to the Taliban um, negotiation team. And anyone who has been tracing and, 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 and looking at the uh, Taliban's diplomatic engagement uh, would know that how important that era was um, having um, a Baradar there as a legitimate Taliban authority um, in the team because um, uh, whoever uh, post-2001 engaged with the Taliban, there was this sort of this sense of um, credibility that who, which, which section or which faction of the Taliban you're talking to. So um, this... Uh, with the U.S. engagement with the Taliban post-2008, October 2018, and then it evolved and then it led us to the uh, 29th of February 2019 U.S.-Taliban agreement um, uh, bring to life um, uh, sort of um, a very important milestone for Taliban diplomacy. Um, by signing an agreement and because that agreement itself whatever it was um, analysts and, 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 and people have to sort of uh, um, uh, talk about and discuss uh, about that particular agreement the text of it the, how it has been crafted and the language and, and what has been achieved from either side but the fact that uh, uh, an insurgency group signed an agreement with a superpower being the United States was a big milestone for the Taliban and, and it meant a lot for the fate of Afghanistan that we are seeing today because it shaped a lot of things uh, from then onward. Um, so from that time, um, because this has been an area of research for me, I've been observing very closely how the uh, media's narrative, the international's narrative, and the Afghan's narrative shifted. Um, and, and I want to focus particularly on Afghanistan actors itself, because um, um, uh, 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 the Afghan people, the government, be it civil society, independent organizations, uh, or the government, um, they looked at this agreement as a way that now the U.S. has signed an agreement with the Taliban. They, the Taliban is the winning actor in Afghanistan. They are going to come to power inevitably. This is when this question of inevitability come to, uh, to life. 
and and everything else on the negative side collapsed from then onward and and uh, and and uh, I, and i think we have to see things from from that light and that's why that is important um, that agreement us taliban agreement did not deliver much to the afghan people but the effect that it had on the afghan on the afghan people is profound and um and 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 we have to look at it that um i mean there i i don't see much uh, analysis and 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 much um um talk about or discussion about that agreement itself but it had a large impact on the people on the security forces uh on how everything else played out from then onward and um even if it's probably an uh, irrelevant to our topic tonight but um coming back to the afghan government uh, president ghani's administration uh, the 2019 presidential election um, probably uh, 1.2 million people only voted uh, uh, and there was a lot a, lo a large scale fraud uh, election fraud that was recorded um, had an impact uh, in addition to that agreement that was signed with U.S. Taliban and an illegitimate government coming back to power with the fraud, with less people endorsing that administration, um, um, sort of demoralized everything else that happened in Afghanistan um, from then onward. And, 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 and yeah, everything makes sense to me because I was a witness. I was a witness to how the election unfolded. I was an observer and then, um, and how these political actors, be it from the Taliban side and from the Afghan government and civil society, viewed that US-Taliban agreement and how it demoralized their agenda and their project of post-2001 in Afghanistan. Um, made sense to me uh, of the event that unfolded on fifteenth uh, of August um, this year. Farhundi, before I bring Andrew in for, for his perspective, do you mind if I ask you? Do you think? Because I've read some of your your work on on this question. Do you think the if there is a mistake, uh, is it the engagement itself or the or the manner in which? it was done, right, leading up to, to the agreement you're talking about as a sort of pivot point. It, it, from your vantage point, is it a mistake? And if so, is it a mistake uh, outright? Or is it just, again, like to recycle the, the question about the intervention? Uh, is it about the execution, the way the United States and others, say, cut out the, the government and, and undercut the state, maybe? No, the engagement was, was the problem. Execution was problem, but secondary, but primarily, I think it was the engagement that was the problem. Because, yeah, I mean, we have been talking about the failures and then the short shortfalls, but the fact that the U.S. committed to the Taliban's condition without receiving any com compensation or any compromise from the Taliban on their direct engagement, U.S. Taliban sitting in one room, one-to-one, -one, talking about the fate of Afghanistan without having the representative of Afghanistan in the room and by extension the government of Afghanistan in the room. 
that itself was a huge part of the problem. I understand that there was a lack of appetite by the U.S. because they wanted to um, conclude this war. They want to. They wanted to withdraw, but I think they did not uh, considered enough about the consequences of their action that would have to Afghanistan and its, and, and, and its people. Anyone who would study the Taliban, they need to, they would go back and understand and study what made the Taliban win today in 2021. Um, and, and, I, and I think this US-Taliban agreement in absence of the Afghan people, the Afghan government would be a big part of a big part of that that win and and yeah that that was the problem i know um there was a lack of legitimacy in the afghan government's part because the election was fraud and uh, president ghani only won probably 1.2 percent or less of the, the the vote but um, this is not to blame to the Afghan people, as I mentioned earlier. Um, in 2014, in 2019, when there was a fraud in the election, the U.S. and international community did not do much, and they were responsible for it. But here, you're, you, you are dealing with an illegitimate government in the, eye, in the eyes of the Afghan people, which you are probably part of it, a large part of it. So, um, yeah, um, uh, it could, the whole thing that the U.S. Taliban agreement was dealt in a, such a such a one-to-one -one sort of um, way uh, was what emboldened the Taliban and something that really demoralized the Afghan people and the security forces and led to that collapse that we saw in the last three months. Andrew, could you please uh, walk us through your understanding of these talks, specifically from an American standpoint, acknowledging Ferhunda's sentiments regarding the Afghan people, but also her point about, and this is you know something I think people across the board do understand, the American fatigue and, and a, a desire and maybe need to, regardless of how it's done and when it's done, leave. The other alternative in the extreme being a presence into perpetuity. That's, that's also untenable. Could you please walk us through your sense of these negotiations leading up to this year as well? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm happy to. And and I would just say that Farhunda's uh, breakdown of of not only the timeline but the significance of of a lot of the different steps is spot on. And so I don't think there's any need to retrace through a, a lot of this engagement. I'm glad that she noted that there had been years of engagement very quietly, both on the Afghan government's part and on the US government's part, honestly going back for, for a decade uh, or a little bit more um, through through quiet channels and and it had never really led anywhere. And, and she's right that there was a, a sea change in the kind of engagement, the, the kind of talks that were going on as of late, late 2018, uh, the very beginning of 2019. Um, but I wanted, 
I'm 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 interested in Farhanda's answer on the question of whether or not it was the engagement itself, uh, you know, using that late 2018, the big change that the United States made, which was the first concession that started any of the direct negotiations, the concession of uh, the United States saying, okay, you've been insisting on it, Taliban, for almost a decade now, and we finally cave, we finally give in. Our, our partner, the Afghan government, does not need to be here at the table for this for an initial round of talks. Um, but perhaps by talking to us directly, you know, a, a global superpower, at the end of that, you know, we can manage to get you to promise to talk to the Afghan government. And, and there's something to Farhanda's suggestion that simply by doing that, they're you may have already given the Taliban as an organization or within its leadership, but also uh, a sense of momentum that trickled all the way down to fighters on the front lines and in districts and in the way that they were able to mount intimidation and, and uh, psychological operations against their, their Afghan government adversaries. I think it filtered down this sense of, aha, if the Americans sit down with us alone. So it's an interesting question. Was there any way to sit down with the Taliban alone that would not have given them the impression that that recognized, you know, their de facto status as winners of the conflict? Um, I, I think, I think there are very, very few hypothetical scenarios in which you could have approached the Taliban, uh, pushed the Afghan government aside for the sake of um, creating or, or sparking a breakthrough in these long stalled discussions and then managed to, to show the Taliban that you had enough strength and enough commitment even though you have just pushed the Afghan government aside to deal with them directly, that you were under no circumstances going to leave the Afghan government in the lurch. Because if that were true, would you have made the concession in the first place? Um, right. But there's you left all them the in the lurch, so to speak, to, or at least to a point by doing this, right? That's right, right. I, I, think, I, think the, I think the initial signal to the Taliban and, and to the and world... And to the government, yeah. Right. Um, and what's interesting is, I mean, we can maybe come back to this in a minute. This is where I think the agency of Afghan national uh, actors, uh, political leadership is so fascinating because while this was absolutely and ultimately triggered by the United States and, and a United States government's uh, prioritization of wanting to leave versus the consequences of what that leave of what that departure would mean everything we've seen is a result of that uh, prioritization um and and the united states has to own that but it is also interesting how if we if we agree and i think we do that the taliban very clearly understood the minute the united states began to speak with them directly it was the beginning of the end of their support for the afghan state from that moment up until mid-August of this year, 
there was very little evidence that the Afghan government was preparing for a future in which the United States actually did abandon them. And, and so while Fakhund's analysis of the impact of this and the sense of the inevitability that it gave everyone, that it gave the Taliban and how that strengthened them, that it gave young men fighting for Afghan army and police forces, that it gave uh, a whole uh, cadre of political leadership in Kabul. I think that's all true. But if that is true, why did we, of all the things we saw the Afghan government doing, why did it not do the one thing that an entire nation and society felt was inevitable, which was really begin to think and to strategize and to plan for the day that the abandonment might actually occur. Um, there was, there seemed to me to always be an aspect of this uh, Afghan government and, and of the political leadership that had a dozen different strategies to try and deal with this, uh, this dilemma that they were opposed which was the United States of America publicly broadcasting that they were ready to abandon their longtime partner. The Afghan government's response took a lot of different forms and a lot of different maneuvering. But what uh, I and, and many other observers did not see were a lot of concrete preparations for when that abandonment would actually happen. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I actually will go back to you soon, uh, I promise. But I just have a small follow up for Andrew on this. Um, I remember once asking you uh, about the then government's uh, approach to, I'd say, influence or control or governance uh, in different parts of Afghanistan. And if I'm remembering correctly, you made the, the interesting point that uh, and please uh, feel free to correct me if I'm misremembering that a lot of it had to do with a consolidation within, but not necessarily effective um, cultivation of influence throughout. Um, and that might be a, a place where there was weakness vis-a-vis -vis, like setting aside the, the big pivot, as you say, which is the Americans deciding to engage the Taliban, cutting out the government. The point about agency is also interesting that the Taliban was able to cut local level deals. It was able to intimidate people. It had cultivated deeper influence uh, in different parts of or different districts of Afghanistan and in some ways inverted the political strategic map. Uh, or maybe we did by deploying to the south and east. How would you, I, I guess, describe that approach to, to governance and link it to the ability to stand up against a faction that is determined, that as you both say, has been and is brutal, and that now has what it senses is an understanding with the world, and in some senses a leverage over others. How, how do you link those two, or do you at all? I think what we witnessed this summer was a collapse of the Afghan government's authority much more than it was um, the byproduct or, or witnessing the strengthening of the Taliban's authority. There were so many districts where Afghan government 
claims to being in control of a district collapsed as a result of nothing more than a dozen Taliban fighters driving up in a few pickup trucks and, and the seeds, the seeds of doubt and of fear and of a sense of inevitability as Farhanda has described were already planted so deeply that that was all it took. Is, is, is that fair? Of course, but how much of that has to do back to the initial question with the approach that this government and associated actors had in the first place? So, so to your point, right, it's both the American decision and it's it's how leaders in Afghanistan are dealing with it. That's very interesting, right? Why was the Afghan government, if we say that the, the government's authority was already so weak in many of these places that, that all it took was a, a little nudge and a disinformation campaign from the Taliban to, to, to collapse the, the, any presence of the state, what had the state been doing for things to get to that point? I think that actually ties back to something Farhande mentioned earlier, but has also worked on far more than I have, which is state society relations that all uh, stem back to the centralized nature of the state. And you have a you have a competition over resources and over political authority uh, that all go back to this design of a highly centralized state. The reason why the Afghan government didn't have much authority was because of, of, of the design of that government and its attempt to monopolize authority over other local stakeholders. But I will leave it at that because I think she can speak to that much more uh, eloquently. Farhundu, uh, would you like to expand? I've also seen some some of the work I think uh, Andrew's referencing. Andrew's point now is, you know, if and to the extent we're looking at an Afghan government that's weaker in certain places, and that also feels, at least to a point, a sense of inevitability uh, regarding American, uh, whether it's distance or withdrawal, right, brought on by the negotiations you've kindly walked us through. Why, why do you think it is they weren't better prepared to stand up? And in that context, uh, Andrew mentioned uh, your points on the, the relation between state and society, between the central authorities and others and the like. So I was, I was wondering if you'd like to comment on, on any of that. I think I want to go back to what I already mentioned, which was that, look, um, it was the milestones that prepared us or uh, walked us through, uh, which was um, proved to us that um, th that, that cases of corruption into the legitimacy of the Afghan government who is going to represent us and at the same time the fact that the Taliban becoming more and more emboldened and they gained this international legitimacy through time all of that played down um, to the Afghan people about their understanding and their sort of um, positioning of what was ahead of them. The cascade of uh, of the military um, um, uh, positioning of the Afghan actors that we saw, I think it did not come out of nowhere. It was very practical, very realistic. People saw that um, the Taliban are inevitably going to come up at the top and we need to shift alliance. 
and that's what we saw. And the fact that, um, um, I mean, my, my point from that US-Taliban agreement was in the absence of the Afghan government and with the fact that the Afghan government was absent because it was an illegitimate government, it did not held that authority and that uh, credibility in the eyes of Afghan people and it was so easy for the US government to avoid it interpreted down um, to the Afghan people that um, yeah, that that they could be um, abandoned or whatever decision that was made upon their fate without them being able to hold anybody accountable and and here we are to, uh, we are looking at um, those um, th those decisions that were made um, um, ab about Afghanistan and about the people and um, the, 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 the Taliban itself coming back to power and, um, and all of that I think um, played out a big role um, in terms of um, uh, what, what happened um, what happened at the end. Over the summer, and here uh, I'd like to transition to maybe the end of our sometimes tough, but very interesting and informative conversation. Uh, over the summer, we've seen the, the change of control you've been talking about. Um, we've seen uh, the Taliban that, that is now on top politically, uh, you know, work on the three fronts you've referenced, the diplomatic front globally, the military front, and then, of course, the, the intimidation and, and in some cases, even uh, assassination. Um, they're now in control. Uh, at least politically and militarily, and to a point institutionally. Uh, Farhunde, uh, first, how do you how do you feel about that? I mean, we've seen some some decisions that are, in my mind, and I'm just speaking as a person, uh, troubling. We've seen some behavior that's that's egregious, um, and yet they are the government now. Where, how do you feel about that, and where do you think we're going? Look, um, regardless of whether we like the Taliban or not, it's about uh, about Afghanistan. And now the Taliban are in power. And for us, uh, putting our emotions and what we desire aside, can the Taliban uphold? Can the Taliban sustain? Can the Taliban government, the way that it has announced and uh, uh, practically um, uh, presenting themselves, can they endure? That's the question. Because at the end of the day, I mean, we're not asking for anything complicated here. We are asking for the people of Afghanistan living in Afghanistan peacefully and now, like there's such a big drama about women rights in Afghanistan, and 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 you 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 boil it down. You look at like the substance of it. It it's it's just about education of girls being able to go to school, um, women who have been educated um, tertiary in tertiary professions, uh, universities to be able to work. This is what it's about now. Can the Taliban do it? If yes, I'm there. 
I mean, me, anyone else, we we would support it because our country, we have been at war for such a long time. Everything has been destroyed and we have had so many gen generations that were grown up um, away from Afghanistan and just feeling and, 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 and um, imagining uh, a, a peaceful and prosperous Afghanistan. Here, can the Taliban deliver anything that would feed or that would uh, fulfill the desire of um, those uh, that that generation of the last twenty years? And what we are seeing, unfortunately, now, regardless we like or not, um, does not even come come close to what what we want, which is um, simple things: um, education and employment women's education and employment and everyone else so so i think um it really uh it's really bring us to an to a conclusion and it it, it brings us to a very fearful um result that afghanistan has just opened itself to another episode of war I'm I'm sad to say this. I mean, I I I'm, I'm very careful in saying this, but but the way things have been unfolding in the last one month, uh, regardless of what we have discussed in the last one or one and a half hour here in in this podcast, but Taliban coming to power, they got everything they wanted. They have a full control of Afghanistan. They have um, defeated a superpower as they wanted, but what's next? And 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 here, <laughs> I'm I'm blank. I don't have um, any any uh, uh, any imagination that is realistic to tell me that or to to walk me through that road that means it's uh, it's in Afghanistan that we as a generation have been working for, have been um, um, hoping for, and, 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 uh, and I'm afraid that this is not just me, but many, many people who have been using the opportunities and the, the, the space in the last 20 years to do good for Afghanistan, and they're deprived once again. So um, um, another episode of war for Afghanistan would mean another generation of sacrifice. And I hate to believe that reality, Anthony. I really do hate to believe, believe that um, we have to live another generation of sort of dreaming and imagining things that we can't do as my parents have been telling me of things they want to do for Afghanistan, but they can't, and they look for me to do it, but then I have to tell my daughters and son or my kids that I can't do, and they have to do. And then that cycle continues. Farhundi, um, thank you for that. Do you, do you feel that, that your sentiments are shared broadly? I mean, you've mentioned to me. I hear complexity, though. Though obviously, a lot of disappointment. But you're mentioning a fear of a return to conflict. You're also mentioning, though, um, a, a sort of fatigue 
maybe an acquiescence where, where people maybe want to go back to basics, uh, regardless of who's in charge. And maybe the, the problem is that the folks in charge are behaving in a way that makes it difficult for others to acquiesce. But do, do you feel that most people are kind of feeling what you're feeling? That, that, that the, the sort of the candle of resistance that you'd mentioned in earlier conversations, be it a localized sort of militarized resistance like in the Panjshir pocket or civil resistance that we've seen in some cities, do you feel that over time this will increase because people are dissatisfied or sort of dissipate because people are despondent and, 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 and I don't want to use the word hopeless, but at least for a while kind of acquiescent? Look, um, I wish I was, uh, I was just my, what I'm saying is just a portion or a very small part of what uh, the Afghan voice or the landscape of Afghan voice is about. But uh, to me, my hope, my desire, and probably people from my generation is very basic rights. I'm talking about girls um, being able to go to school. I mean, we are just hearing that the Taliban have banned girls from um, primary school onwards, secondary from year seven onward to go to school. It's simple as that. It's, it's that that we are talking about. People who make a narrative out of this, that this urban um, rural divide, and then they talk about that you are not from Afghanistan, you have been away for too long and you don't understand. Yeah, don't listen to us, but go back to these people in the villages, in the cities, and then this, I mean, 70% um, of Afghanistan is made up of um, some something around, um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, under 30, uh, 30 years of old. Listen to them. What do they want? They want an education. They want opportunities. They want a job. They want access to a globalized world. And if I ask anything more than that, come and blame me. But but please don't tell us that what we are asking for, my sister, my brother, my cousins in the country is a way that to, to, abandon, um, to abandon their right. And here, um, these people, um, what 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 they have been asking, regardless if it's a uh, if it's a U.S. backed democracy or a Taliban theocracy, um, they just want to go to school. Simple as that. Whatever curriculum it is, they want to go to school. Um, be it a girl or a boy, and they want to go. And I want to tell you a story from my village. I was traveling to Daikundi Province, Central Afghanistan, in 2010, and uh, and, and, and when I was traveling back to Kabul to take my flight back to Australia, there was a elderly father sitting in front of me with her very young daughter, and I asked about the purpose of their trip, and he and he told me that. He has sold his only cow, his only treasure, which was a cow, to be able to afford his daughter's education in Kabul. And that gave me that sense that these people have poured their heart and their soul to post-2001 Afghanistan. 
which was educating their girls. Now in Afghanistan, we have a generation of educated girls who are from yesterday onward not able to go to school. What happens to them? You know, what, what happens to these many millions of girls who can't turn up to their school, who can't uh, articulate or who can't materialize um, the dream that they have. And, and I, I think our fight, our talk, our advocacy is boiled down to that. N nothing more. We're not asking for anything more. Anything complex, sophisticated, based on US, European rights, but we just want to be able to go to school, work, be employed, earn money, be independent when we we are we are forced to or we want to, so we could afford um, our lives um, to support our families. That's all. That's all we want, and and all of that into consideration of the framework of the Islam and Afghan um, cultures. That's it. Andrew, um, again, Farhundis shared some uh, moving and profound uh, sentiments. Uh, neither of us are Afghan. Both of us are, are American. Um, kind of just bringing it together with the earlier bits of our conversation. You know, the, the clock didn't start when America decided to involve itself overtly. And for a lot of people and at different levels, it doesn't end when we decide to go back to bed or, or put it to bed, so to speak. What, what can and should Americans, be they in government, in the, in the private sector or in the non-governmental sector, do at this point? When, when, you, when you hear what Farhund is saying and, and remembering what, what I guess we could loosely call our broader whether it's strategic, political, and moral interests and imperatives, what do you think we can and should do? And beyond that, if you have any concluding thoughts or sentiments, uh, please feel free to, to take it. Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, thanks to Farhunda for for the for for laying it out as simply as it is, because for all of the debate and and all of the all of the discourse, it really is as simple as, as as half of the human beings in this state, in this society, uh, being denied the most basic opportunities that make a, a, a full life. Um, I think something that, that she said earlier is ringing in my head, which is this lack of options or, or these impossible choices and 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 what ties my stomach into knots as an American who has been a part of various American and international efforts to 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 intervene in Afghanistan um, is this is not the first era of impossible choices or lack of decent options that our actions have presented to. Afghans. Uh, right now, the choice, as, as Farhanda said, is 
is split between accepting a fate that that isn't even a real life or contemplating uh, a kind of resistance that might lead to another phase of war yet another phase of war and and that's a result of our having walked away but also the last 20 years have been a, an impossible set of of all bad options the united states and and its partners helped create space new uh, openings of space in in media and and in education and and movements towards however incremental uh, some idea of gender equality of of equal opportunity um but that all came at the barrel of american guns with a steady uh in fact, increasing list of people killed and injured every year. Um, not all at American hands, but owing to the American presence driving that conflict. Um, and you can go back into for, into earlier eras and, and the choices the United States have made have left Afghans all across the country with nothing but bad options. Um, and, and the way that we have intervened has has muddied up any possibility so many people have of, of taking a step forward. Maybe to conclude on, on what uh, US, the U.S. government or, or Americans can do, in addition to the impossible choices Afghans face and how to deal with the, 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 the new Taliban government, they also face one of the worst humanitarian crises or, or rather a set of crises, all of which are, are overlapping on top of one another. But it's not just a humanitarian crisis, one on top of another. The Afghan economy is also in free fall. And, and the Taliban government, in addition to everything that it's doing towards women in, in a monopolization of power, its use of violence, it's simply not capable of, of engaging with world economic systems, uh, the national economy at the scale that's necessary. And even if it could, even if the Taliban did have that capacity to get to work tomorrow and produce results, you know what? They would still be stuck in the same trap that the United States created over the last 20 years which was to build up an artificiality within the Afghan economy that requires foreign assistance. And, and, and that's, that's what's eating at me. It, whatever the United States does, even if it's to come back and to try and help, to provide humanitarian aid, to release assets or not release them, this, this question of can the United States bring itself morally to engage with the Taliban in order to help the, the Afghan people Guess what? Even if it does, if it doesn't, it's 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 created another cycle where foreign engagement is necessary and is going to be incomplete and imperfect. Um, I'm sorry to, to to conclude on that note, but that's where I see it. No, thank you. And you raised some important and interesting points about the longer legacy of. American intervention and how through violence and other engagement, you can remake or reshape state and society and then sort of 
leave it in the, the sort of traps you talked about. And may, maybe at some point in the future, we can get together again and, and talk about that once we've had time to, to see uh, what does happen. Uh, Fakhunde, uh, would you like to, to comment any further, maybe make some closing remarks? I want to thank you, first of all, for sharing so much and for managing to open up personally and yet analyze, uh, I guess, quote unquote, professionally. I know these conversations can be very difficult. I know they can be draining. And I know I speak for Andrew, myself and our and our listeners uh, in thanking you for making yourself uh, available and for speaking with us. But do you no, want to say anything? Yeah, no, pleasure is mine. Um, it's always difficult to to capture Afghanistan. It's people I never consider myself to be able to speak uh, about Afghanistan, but only on my behalf about Afghanistan. But I want to um, probably talk, uh, share a, a, a quote or a, a verse from from Bedil, which uh, who is considered as the father of meaning in the uh, in Afghanistan and then in the Persian um, literature. Um, um, and, and, and there's a verse that he, he, he recites, which says, I, 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 I say it in Farsi, that And the direct translation, which is very bad, is what an imagination that the heart is comforted from a wound because the eye of the fire spark is stretched um, is, is stitched, uh, to its ashes. And for us to talk about Afghanistan today and talk about its hopes is like an ash or a spark of an ash talking about its future because it's so destructive and so diminishing. And, um, and this verse of Bidil, the father of meaning, has stuck with me for many years. And I'm so sad that today um, it is so much more alive to me because as a generation invested on us, um, a generation that has been given the platform to us, like me tonight and many of people like me in the last um, uh, a decade or so, uh, we have to talk about the destruction of our future and and all what has happened to Afghanistan. Uh, it did not have happened inevitably. There are people responsible for it. There are actors, um, state or per or person, um, and domestically and internationally. But uh, I'm, I'm so sad to live with the reality um, that they will never be held accountable, probably in, not, not in my lifetime. And, and, and we just have to go on with a very um, sad and agonized um, episode of Afghanistan from now onward as well. But but I'm, I don't know, I, I still want to be hopeful and I still want to think that um, the we, the generation that have been empowered with so much money and resources 
and support from people like you, like Andrew and so many others that, um, that we could change something good. And, and, and today for me to speak um, on this platform as the girls of Afghanistan have been abandoned from going to school, I don't know what my, my responsibility is from now onward. And I don't know what you, Andrew, and ev everyone else have, to, have to, to advocate from now onward um, that could bring that change to that girl that want to go to school in anywhere in Afghanistan, you know, be it in a village, in a, in a very poor, impoverished district, um, just to be able to read and write like their brothers. Farhundi, um, we've been very fortunate to, to have you with us. And I must say, I, I, at a personal level, I'm always very happy to talk to you. I'm very saddened to hear you speak this way. Um, and I'm very saddened by, by the realities and truths you're talking about. Um, uh, at this point here, I, I don't know if I can say anything that wouldn't seem hollow. Um, I, I do love that you still talk about hope and I harbor hope. I know others do that others will harbor hope regardless of whether and how they can at this point translate that in, into action or if they should. Um, it is very difficult to talk about the states and societies in our part of the world, Farhundi. Um, and it's, it is difficult in the moment, in the tyranny of the moment to think about the future, but I can only join you in hoping, uh, and though recognizing your disappointment and frustration and sadness that, that it will be better and that we can all, even in little ways and hopefully someday larger ways help. Um, at a personal level, I, I would say I've really uh, appreciated speaking with, with Andrew, of course, Andrew Watkins. Thank you for joining us. And with you, Farkhundi, both during this podcast and over the past few weeks, I would love to visit with you someday. And perhaps we can listen to Fairuz together, whether that's in Kabul or, or Beirut or, or somewhere else. Thank you for being with us. If you want to say anything, I'll, I'll leave it to you and our, I'll bid our uh, listeners uh, goodbye. Thank you, Anthony. That means a lot. You know, I'll just end here. Thank you so much for the platform and for the time to you and to Andrew. This has been the New Lines podcast. Thank you for joining us for this uh, sometimes difficult but still enriching conversation. We'll see you again next time.